You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. I plan to make the change Tuesday, unless something terrible happens. Those don't sound like historic words. I plan to make the change Tuesday unless something terrible happens. But those words, uttered on May 11th, 1981, at 9 a.m., were the first recorded words on a Usenet forum. Not the first words, but the earliest recorded words. Usenet is the precursor to the World Wide Web. The Internet is older than we might think, and it evolved, existed in different forms in many places, and wasn't universal. There were folks trading something very much like email at MIT, MIT Mailbox, as early as 1965, leaving messages for each other and then picking them up from a mainframe computer. The Community Memory Project of 1974 linked different neighborhoods of the San Francisco area together where people could post notes, maybe an item for sale or something they were looking for, and people could look them up through dummy terminals, a record store, a branch of the San Francisco Library, and a few other places. That was 1974. And, of course, ARPANET connected with the military, where Ray Tomlinson, a contractor, sent a test email, likely with a few meaningless letters. He doesn't even remember. He is the inventor of the at symbol, representing the separation of who sent the message from what computer they sent it from, which we still use today. That was 1975. What the 1990s brought was the visual, gooey form of Internet, of Tim Berners-Lee, the World Wide Web, where we're clicking things and going to places. But the connection of computer users, not on a mainframe, the connection of user computers together in a network, UUCP, or as it was named by a Democratic vote, Usenet, started in 1980. Originally, it was 50 sites where users could go chat, post stories, say silly, embarrassing things, and yes, argue about many things, including politics. 
UC Berkeley, UC Oklahoma, Bell Labs, they were all early Usenet sites. And by 1983, there were 500. It doubles in 1984, 1,000. All of a sudden, people found, though separated by miles, they were connected by wires and things could get political and personal. And so a lot of these terms that we know today, FAQ, flame, spam, trolling, these came from Usenet groups as people observed behavior. Now, I assure you, dear listeners, that... I was not on this system. No, no, your host would not join the fray of political discussion typing politics into a computer over a phone line for another 13 years or so. I'm a web guy, and my computer use at this time consisted of video games. But a fellow who was active in these groups, his name was Michael Godwin. He was a tech guy, but he was also a lawyer, and he felt that discussions on Usenet groups would too often go to Nazis or Hitler, and he hated it. He was really mad. It trivialized the Holocaust, and it also was absurd. It seemed like you could easily win an argument by just comparing to Hitler. So he developed a rule, and he deliberately entered Usenet discussions where someone said something about Nazis and posted this. As an online discussion grows larger, the probability of a comparison involving Nazis or Hitler approaches. This is Godwin's Law. This is the rule that may be in your head when you think about typing something about Hitler to someone you're arguing with, and then you hold back. Because you realize you can't, you shouldn't. Godwin's Law. Soon found out that the rule that he was propagating started getting cited by people he didn't even know. He then went on, to pen an article in 1994 in Wired magazine. Now this, at that time, right at the beginning of the web, would have been a real geeky magazine that would have been seen by the people using these discussions. In an article called Meme Counter Meme. And yes, he did make history because it was the first published discussion of the word meme to describe an internet trend that spreads around the world like a virus. He notes, and this is back in 1994, that in debates about the Second Amendment, gun control advocates were reminded that Hitler banned personal weapons. That's 1994 that he's saying this. You still hear that argument today. Millions of concentration camp victims didn't die to give some net blowhard a handy trope. His strategy to counter this was working. He noticed that where he posted his law in those Usenet groups. Nazi references went down. After his Wired article, it went down all over the early internet. And his law was so well known that it jumped, where even in verbal discussions, Godwin's law. There are other of these uh, internet laws that you hear of, Skeet's law, 
any person correcting an error online will make an error in that post. But nothing sticks like Goodwin's. We normally think of laws as coming from big names like Albert Einstein or Sir Isaac Newton. I mean, maybe a judge or a legislator. Michael Godwin is really just a guy. Godwin's law is really no law at all. It's just an observation and a suggestion. Godwin is a lawyer, and he has done some work for the EFF, but he's certainly no legislator or has no authority to really make laws. In fact, interviewed recently, he says that when he's called to ask uh, or to adjudicate if something someone's doing violates Godwin's law, he feels hesitant to really make that call. He's just the guy who invented the observation, who made the first observation. He'll just say, maybe, or feels like it might be a violation. It's been public that there are many times where it is okay to use a comparison to Nazis or Hitler in a debate, like discussions of Hitler himself, because The other side of this, in absurdity, is seen in a cartoon. A group of Allied soldiers during World War II are planning an attack, but they're unable to communicate because they can't reference Nazis or Hitler. Obviously, if you're discussing World War II, Godwin's law wouldn't apply. Okay, so on the website at www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com, I have the post, the original article that Mike wrote in 1994, and also some old Usenet uh, information. So check it out, www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. I think it's generally a good rule. First of all, it's he's right. The Holocaust was a terrible event, and it belittles it to keep bringing it up in every discussion. It also helps us to have meaningful political debate, because if all you have to do is reference Hitler in a debate, Hitler is seen as so nearly universal, is seen as evil, I mean, unless and suppose you're a neo-Nazi, that referencing him in a debate gives your argument extra power that you did not earn by the strength of your argument.
and turned a building that was as famous through Germany as is the dome of the Capitol in Washington among U.S. citizens into a glowing hodgepodge of incandescent girders, gutting completely the brown oak chamber and ruining its great dome of gilded copper and glass. Time Magazine The Reichstag was the center of German government. It was, at that time, in 1933, the center of German democracy in what had been the Weimar Republic. Now the country was run by a odd and fragile coalition between conservative groups, industrialists, and the National Socialist or Nazi Party. Now that name can be confusing, particularly as socialism comes up in these times in debates, probably its strongest tenet was anti-communist, not part of the international communist movement or any kind of international socialist movement, not as some modern commentators misunderstanding the situation completely might say some kind of liberal socialist party. It was not. It was running against the Socialist Democrats, that was their main opponent, and the Communist Party in Germany, their main opponents. There's elections, and the Nazi Party never receives a majority of the vote. But they are a large party in Parliament, and so the president, a popular war hero, Hindenburg, allows Adolf Hitler, as head of the Nazi Party, to become Chancellor of Germany. From the beginning, it's obvious from his behavior, there's no intention to pursue really this coalition government for very long. He argues with the other members of his coalition. One of the guys is Hugenberg, who's a member of one of the con- leader of one of the conservative parties in Germany. It's a key when, when you're studying this topic, and I think that it's something that really deserves a lar- larger treatment and something that I have planned. But I think it's important to understand the role of these parties. You know, there never would have been enough support to get the uh, National Socialists anywhere near the government if not for other business and conservative and nationalist German parties who cooperated. Hitler wants new elections. He wants another chance to try to get a larger government and a government that's going to support him taking total control. They call for it that there will be elections in March. Before the elections, the Reichstag is set on fire and destroyed. Everyone's horrified by it. Hindenburg comes out of a dinner. He can't believe what he's seeing. According to the the head of police in Prussia, uh, Adolf Hitler sees the fire and says, you're now witnessing the beginning of a great epoch in German history. This fire is the beginning. There really is a mystery about who exactly started the fire due to some manipulation of Hindenburg, who's older at this time. The Nazi party has control over the biggest state in Germany already, the state that includes Berlin. The investigation, therefore, is conducted by people who are loyal to the National Socialists. They find that the fire was set by a Dutch socialist who had come to Germany with explosives and von Loop, who who is accused of doing this, is is executed. In 1967, a German court reduced his sentence, you know, posthumously, obviously, 
1981. In 2007, Von Loop is officially cleared of the crime, but no one can really provide full evidence that he didn't do it. And even the 2007 action on behalf of the German attorney general was only conducted because Von Loop had been convicted under Nazi law, and it was assumed that anyone convicted under that law that was specifically passed by the National Socialists would be seen uh, as unjust law. What we don't know is whether a fire happens and the Nazis take advantage of it, or whether they perhaps even started the fire. And it almost doesn't matter, because this event they used to pass some of the most sweeping and restrictive measures The juggernaut of new decrees included increasing the weaponry provided to Nazi troops despite violation of the Treaty of Versailles and the transfer of the majority of state powers from President Hindenburg to Hitler and his cabinet. Rights insured by the German Constitution were suspended and a gag rule was placed on foreign journalists within the country with severe punishments. Within the month, Time reported that nearly all the country's leading communists and socialists were in jail. Immediately after the fire... SS troops, previously these were just kind of like Nazi brawlers, now are made official police, and they hunt down communists, round up thousands of them, socialist Democrats, liberals, and 51 anti-Nazis are murdered during this campaign. All political activity, meetings, publications is suppressed. Campaigning against Hitler and the Nazis was in effect made illegal. Here's what Time Magazine says. The arson came amid a campaign of unparalleled violence and bitterness by then-Chancellor Adolf Hitler in advance of an approaching German election. Before German democracy could thus be downed this week, the Hitler cabinet had to launch last week a juggernaut of super-suppressive measures and decrees for which they needed an excuse. What excuse could be better than the colossal act of arson? Over a nationwide radio hookup, the Minister of Interior for Prussia, Nazi Captain Hermann Goring, cried, The Reichstag fire was to have been the signal for the outbreak of civil war. The communist, Goring said, had read in readiness terror squads of 200 each. These were to commit their dastardly acts disguised as units of our own Nazi stormtroops. The women and children of high government officials were to have been kidnapped as hostages and used in the Civil War's living shields. The communists had organized to poison food, to burn down granaries throughout the Reich. They had planned to use every kind of weapon, even hot water, knives, forks, and burning oil. From all these horrors, we have saved the fatherland. By April, Nazis were using the threat of another fire to ensure the passage of the Enabling Act, which solidified... Hitler's place as dictatorial leaders for years to come. So what occurs is, after the Reichstag fire, they still, the National Socialist or Nazi Party, still doesn't get a majority of the German vote. They get 44%, even with campaigning for everyone else becoming illegal. But in reality, it doesn't matter. They're able to pass that enabling act, really reduce the democracy to nothing but a rubber stamp where needed. And with Hindenburg's death in 1934... Hitler assumes full power of the country. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. 
Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers, and have a safe tomorrow. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So there's a reason to discuss the, the Reichstag fire. Because I think that it gives you some parameters here to like, when can you actually talk about Nazis and Hitler in a political debate. And it gives you the proper perspective that it's a pretty high bar. In my- I think this is a good and valid use of Godwin's law. It helps for better debates. There probably should be more rules of debates that would, that would be helpful and more flagging of, of things, um, logical flaws and the like. You know, I appreciate a good debate. But I think not just when you're describing, say, a dictator in a foreign land who's doing things that are definitely like the Nazis or Hitler, or when you're discussing actual Nazis of the past or a neo-Nazi group, but I also think events that are like what was done in 1933 and 1934 surrounding the Reichstag fire where democracies being decimated or destroyed are also well within the bounds of Godwin's law, in my opinion. So if events like that happen, that's where I think you can give a little break. But as you can see, it's a very high bar. And I don't believe it's going on now. But it is something, it's a high bar, and it's something to be aware of, a place where I think its usage is proper. I think Godwin's law brings up a whole nother discussion about the kind of meta debate around debates and the linguistic framing that is going on in politics. And some people are aware of it and others are not. That when he referenced his law in certain Usenet groups, but didn't in others, the Hitler and Nazi references went down in debates in those Usenet groups. And I think it's an interesting dynamic. What occurred there? Did the people who felt strongly about their positions, say, in the Second Amendment or freedom of speech or other things, freedom of religion, did they feel any less strongly about their beliefs? Probably not. Did they sometimes, I'm sure, feel like they were justified in using that comparison? Yes, they probably did. 
but rhetorically, their argument would have lost their sting if they used it. And it's kind of an interesting linguistic device. See, so now someone uses Hitler in an argument, it now becomes something beyond that argument. It's a meta argument. It's a meta discussion. You know, it, it goes to some of this like George Lakoff stuff, like don't think about an elephant. But if you're th- saying that, you're already thinking about an elephant. So using language appropriately and for your values and for the side you want to be on, it's an interesting thing to observe that there are these memes and counter memes and labeling. So labeling, and I think it could be used for good and bad, but labeling can shortcut an argument that's being used commonly. And you see it. You see a a very similar thing to what Goodwin's doing in, in our debates today about the media and the kind of fake news. So the minute... It seems uh, CNN says anything or reports anything or New York Times or WAPO, fake news. Uh, you know, now you're kind of stopped from reading the article at all and all you're thinking about is is that this is a phony news source. On the other hand, something like trolling, also from the Usenet days, was behavior that still occurs, um, but... It's behavior that in and of itself, in an individual argument, the person could endlessly justify what they were doing. I'm just asking questions here. But someone who can take a look at it from a higher perspective um, and see that in many other Usenet forums that that behavior was occurring can now label it and then call it out when it occurs in an individual situation. You're trolling. So I think that if you're kind of trapped in a discourse and you can't get out of it, labeling's one of these ways of doing it. I'm waiting for the opponents of the fake news term to come up with their own label for what's being done every time you say fake news. Uh, you're, um, You're discounting, but that's not a good name. And I'm not the one to come up with it. You know, it's good and bad. It shortcuts arguments in a way. But on the other hand... Um, can we really say that the Nazi and Hitler references that Mike Goodwin was circling out in Usenet groups were really an enlargement of the discussion? Or did by applying this label and zapping the conversation through a meta device, the conversation was improved? Hope you enjoyed this. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. A note about the premium podcast. Uh, for as little as $2 a month, you can get more bonus episodes and repeats of previous episodes. Also, if we do have ads on the program and it's something that's there's talk about now, you will receive shows without ads on the premium podcast www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpoliticspremium.com thanks for listening all you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the this day in history podcast every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when 
So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts.